It's always the lie that is loudest. I know the one with the power. It's never the one who is shouting, shouting. I lean in. I know that I need to listen. Through all of the thunder you whisper. Even in doubt you are with me, with me. Like a love song that I've always known. Your word hits me deep inside my soul. When you speak, I'm found in the sound of peace. Be still. The wind in the waves back to you. We're here with another episode of Lighthouse Podcast. And we're talking about 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the subheading says qualifications for overseers in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so we're going to try and dive into that today and see what we have. So let's get ready here on Lighthouse Podcast. That's Jeremy Camp. Jeremy Camp, when you speak. And uh, we're going to get into 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul has some positive attributes and some concerns. And we're going to try to develop a context for this because I think this is most important for our understanding of what Paul is trying to get at here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We typically have this uh, idea in mind of an ambassador. And if I were to ask you what you thought uh, the best ambassador in your lifetime was or who that was, then who would you say? One of the people that came to my mind that, that actually kind of surprised me that I thought of when I asked myself this question was the uh, Condoleezza Rice. Condoleezza Rice just impresses me, and I'll tell you why. Every time I have seen her in public, and it has nothing to do with her political affiliation, uh, in the past it has been even in after uh, her stint with the White House, it was the fact that she could read War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace, in Russian. That says something about a person when an American can learn uh, how to speak fluent Russian and communicate in fluent Russian meaningfully and can read Tolstoy's War and Peace in Russian and comprehend it and process it, uh, that, that shows a lot of um, determination, uh, competence, um, just, the, just the things that Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rice um, exhibited throughout her life. I actually read 
a little bit of one of her books and um, she's just an impressive character and I don't think that anybody would have a problem uh, aside from you know their political bias I don't think anybody would have a problem saying I would want her to represent me Um, that is something that came to my mind when I thought of this because this is what exactly is going on with Paul and Timothy. Timothy is being spent, uh, being <laughs> he's being spent as well. He's being sent by the Apostle Paul as an apostolic delegate into Ephesus, and it is for a purpose, and that purpose is to realign their understanding of the church, realign their understanding of what Paul's mission is in spreading uh, the euangelion, the gospel of Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Roman Empire. And of course, Paul wasn't alone in that effort, uh, but Ephesus, where Timothy is at, is definitely one of those places that is critical to the spread of the gospel throughout the empire. And if you have anybody um, sent to Ephesus, it, it, it had better be somebody that um, can be competent, um, can understand uh, Paul and, the, uh, and make clear what Paul's instructions and ideas and concerns are because he has his apostolic teaching is at stake, uh, his witness of the gospel. So we have a larger context here in First Timothy and Second Timothy. You have the books of uh, the, of Paul that are to the Ephesians. You also have First and Second Timothy. You have uh, the letters of John, I believe, are written uh, to that area and deal with Ephesus. You have a lot uh, of material that we can develop a context for Ephesus. And without the context, we don't really have a good idea of, of what we can really say about these what is normally called qualifications for overseers. Uh, usually we, we turn that into maybe an, uh, who is ethically better or we turn it into something that it, it is not intended to be and, and it distorts our picture of the purpose and goals of uh, Jesus for the church. So what we have here in First Timothy is you have an apostolic delegate, an ambassador being sent in Timothy. Timothy is going to remind those in Ephesus of Paul's ways, of his teachings, and he's going to instruct. And there are many who are leaders there in Ephesus. Some are good, some are not. And those that are not are not going to promote the gospel throughout the region. Remember, the overall uh, goal for Paul is to let people know that Jesus is the one who has the ability um, or has been given 
actual sovereignty over the entire world, heaven and earth, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And so Jesus says to those 11 that were gathered with him in the mountain in Galilee, he says, therefore, uh, go into all the world uh, teaching whatsoever I've, uh, I've commanded you. Uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what, what, whatever it is that I have commanded you, and I'm with you even to the end of the um, Ionis or the era, age, epic, as most versions will say it. And so Paul and many of the others um, understood their commission, and they went out, and that's what they did. They spread the good news that Jesus Christ is king by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. That is what the commission uh, began with. That was the motivation because Jesus rules our world. And here in Ephesus, you definitely have a dissension. You have a dissension. You have someone uh, leaving that narrative uh, in the background because they have assumed positions of authority or uh, leadership that have distorted the teachings. And we, we know that this is the case with at least a few of them whom Paul mentions. Uh, he even talks about it in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, through 20, he says, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Isn't that something? Blaspheming. What are they doing? Well, they're obviously they're teaching a different gospel. Uh, obviously, they're teaching something against the teachings of Christ. And this is shipwrecking their faith and the faith of others. They're leading people astray. And this is the problem that we have here in 1 Timothy. It is so important to establish that context that you have Timothy as an ambassador, a competent, clear, uh, articulate ambassador for the Apostle Paul as he instructs those in Ephesus through Timothy how to behave in the household of God, the church. And so the natural thing would be to revise the understanding of some and their understanding of what an overseer is, because there are many who are corrupt in Ephesus. And that's important to our context, because Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a good thing that he aspires. Now, too, now 
you and I, if we were to if we were to have children, perhaps perhaps you're listening and you're you're thinking the same things I am, and we have children, and one of them says, you know, I, Dad, I would like to become, uh, I would like to go into political science and become a politician. Uh, none of us probably at this point would would say, well, that's a, that's a good choice. Um, None of us would say that uh, from what we see in public right now. That is, that is a horrible choice. Um, even though it is needed, clear, articulate, um, strong, um, competent leadership is needed in every generation and uh, just as much now, if not more. So we have here... In the very first verse of chapter three in in First Timothy, um, it's a noble task. If you want to be an overseer of a church, uh, of a of a congregation, of an assembly, of those who are assembling in in, in our area, um, as it would be in First Timothy or Ephesus with the house churches, you had many who were house owners. Uh, um, hosting those of the faith, believers. They were hosting assemblies in their own houses. They didn't didn't necessarily have the um, arenas or uh, buildings that you and I are so familiar with in our era in the Western world. So you would have had to have many in those households probably be the ones that are, are being considered for the office of overseer. And some of them are um, not good, and some of them are are good and um, or are modeling or being uh, other kinds of ambassadors for the gospel. So this is what we want to get after in, in today's podcast. We really want to get after some of these sayings and try to work our way around them because we have uh, a little bit more time uh, to talk about them in class, uh, but we really want to get into what each one of them means. But before we did that, we have to establish that that context. Otherwise, it just really doesn't make sense for us. We just begin thinking of, as, thinking of this as an individual. How do I stack up? And that is dangerous because it then it be, then it begins to set uh, other believers above other believers in an inappropriate uh, consideration, um, and 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 it is not that uh, Paul is saying there are some better Christians among you, and I want to just you know uh, elevate them. That is not 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 what Paul is after not what Timothy's trying to do. What he's doing is he's elevating the model of um, what what it means to be a representative of Christ. And every Christian should be doing this. Let's repeat that. Every Christian should be doing this, but that's, that's our probably obvious um, subconscious understanding. There aren't many. There aren't many. Who are who are going to uh, break out in 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 the brotherhood? Who have the capability of really embracing this role? And so it is a special role. 
It is not something to be taken lightly. It is supposed to be something that uh, is taken serious because of because of the overall mission of Christ and the gospel being spread throughout our communities, um, our lives, of course, within our families, but uh, the communities that we live in and across the world, especially. It is a worldwide commission. So let's get into the reading of these um, attributes, and then we're going to get into some of the meaning. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to get into all of the meanings. Uh, there, there is overlap with some of them, uh, but it's for a reason. And there are many uh, commentators, scholars, who have uh, surprisingly long lists about what to talk about in regard to how to define these. And some of them, surprisingly um, reputable scholars, make very short lists of what these things mean. And they, uh, that they, di- they differ. So I'm going to give you what I am uh, have been reading for the last several months and have understood from past. But I'm going to try to articulate it for us today. In this, in this episode. So, in verse 2, Paul begins, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, surprisingly, there's a lot of context around these words and how they were understood in the first century, which uh, I myself have to study to understand how they even thought about what Paul is saying before I think about how they should be applied uh, 2,000 years later. Um, So it makes a difference uh, to me how we read these. When we get into the idea of of reproach, we have, we have this idea of blameless in other texts, uh, perhaps Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and uh, even uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 10, uh, and, and if, they, if they prove them, if the deacons prove themselves blameless. And you, you kind of have this idea of, well, does that mean sinless? No, it doesn't mean sinless, of course. No one is without sin. Uh, but we, we, have to, we have to see it as an essential requirement that within this um, code for the role of overseer, um, it's kind of like the equivalent of you, you, you really need to have this reputation with outsiders and those within and within your family. So you have, you have kind of three levels. You have within within the family, you have to be respected. Um, 
with within the church you have to be respected and and outside the church you have to be respected and that is why i mentioned uh, condoleezza rice i don't i don't i've never met condoleezza rice i mean my goodness um but i i associate someone who is very composed respectful of others um and i have i've never even met her of course um all of us probably haven't right but um the idea is is the reputation precedes her now i know that we can make image through media and so forth but after reading some of what her personal writings have been and what others have said about her um it's her reputation so when somebody says that uh, the uh, be above reproach when paul says must be above reproach I think he really kind of has that in mind that you you are someone um, who has a really good reputation with within your family, within the church, and with people that you've worked with throughout your life, and that's really difficult to have uh, for some. Uh, that's that's not something that just comes natural, and the reason for this is because there are many in Ephesus who don't have that reputation. In fact, they're the ones that are attacking others and so that might have a good reputation. So you have this problem within the church. The, having a good reputation precedes um, things we say, obviously. If Jesus doesn't say, if Jesus um says all of this stuff that he does, but he doesn't heal anybody. He doesn't care for people. He just is condescending to people. Um, it's going to make it really difficult for us to think that there is um, truly someone who is living out the first and second commandments, the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We're going to find it really difficult to follow somebody with that kind of a reputation uh, who is not doing that. This is what's going on here, I think, in these verses. And so we have this idea of a leader's um, public image, but also that of the image within the family and within the church. And this high ideal parallels the concerns of uh, all of these uh, secular lists that people may have or the expectations that people may have um, and of, of leaders in our own era right now. So Paul is very sensitive to the expectations of wider society. It's not that he's trying to appease wider society, but he knows that all of it, even though most of it is, seems to be corrupt, it doesn't mean that people are stupid all the time. They, they, they know what they're looking at when they see someone who has the right character and who has the right priorities and, again, the right reputation. So the leader's reputation and the overseer's reputation in the church must be able to withstand assaults from opponents, whether inside or outside. And uh, this, is, this is the difficulty with 
becoming that kind of a role. You're going to have attacks on you. You're going to have people that don't care what you, uh, your character is if they feel they can uh, over or upstage you or, as they did with um, Timothy, uh, grandstand. If, if they have more uh, maybe um, challenging um, passions than an overseer might have, it really becomes difficult. Let's continue on. The husband of one wife. This is really something that is challenging for the church, and this is something that we're, we're going to discuss in class as well. And it's not something that's easy uh, to talk about because there are so many uh, emotional responses to it. I'm not suggesting that I have all of the truth about it. I'm just going to kind of uh, give an appetizer of it right now, and we'll get on into it in class. And so Paul uh, then begins with these positive attributes. And the most contentious one usually is an overseer's marriage. So the phrase is translated faithful to his wife in the T and IV is literally husband of one wife. And Titus 1.6 reflects that as well. But the NIV had the husband of but one wife, and the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, has married only once. So the ambiguity of this phrase is clearly evident to people in in our world. Does that mean that it was meant to rule out uh, polygamy, having many spouses? Um, if you know the words... Uh, then, then you're ahead of the game. Uh, polygamy, having many, I believe, having many uh, uh, spouses. That's, it doesn't mean, it's, well, it says wives. Well, that would, I think that's pol- poly- polygony, which is the idea of having many wives. If you're polyandrists, then you have many husbands. So polygamy, I believe, if I re- return to my Greek is going to mean having many um, spouses, uh, or is it? Does it mean that it? Does this mean to exclude unmarried men from holding the office? Uh, does it mean prohibiting remarriage even after a spouse may die or after a divorce? Well, there's a lot of considerations to make, um, and. Um, uh, these interpretations are what scholars typically believe are less than likely the interpretation of this. And the broader scope of the passage suggests that fidelity, even though this is not the only aspect of it, but fidelity in marriage is is what is really meant. So to have, to be the husband of one wife or some versions will say uh, a one-woman man. Well, what does that sound like again? If you look into our world and think about politicians, think about leaders, um, what, what is what is typically what was David's downfall? Uh, he's just you know 
he had to have he had to have Bathsheba, right? So you have this conversation within our public arenas, and and you find out that that many are um, not faithful, or they don't love their they really don't love their wives, they really don't love their spouses, and it comes out, and so there's a weakness there. Uh, that is a weakness when there, when the priority is not aligned properly. When when an overseer has a problem loving his wife, then that will affect everything else in that role, and that is why this is so uh, challenging for so many. So. It, it really has to do with the idea of, well, what kind of husband and father can this person be if he doesn't, if he doesn't really devoted to his wife? So uh, casting aside some of the previous questions about what does this mean? Does this mean he can't be married? Think about what Paul is saying. Okay, we, we need models of proper Christianity. Um, it's not talking about who is um, to be looked down upon in the church if they're not married, uh, if they um, have been divorced. That's not the point. The point is, is for the role of an overseer, it has, it has a critical element of how they manage their own household. How, how do they, how are they respected within their own household, within their own marriage? It comes right down to the beginning of it. Okay, so that's, that's why Paul says this must be above reproach. And then he's qualifying it. So don't, don't, don't list these and go one is completely different than the other. They're all connected. And the husband of one wife or the one woman man um has to be the priority. That's that's really challenging for leaders in the in our world, and it was really challenging for um, Ephesus. This is not something I'm just digressing on. First Timothy chapter four, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith uh, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the uh, through the insincerity insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who uh, believe and know the truth. What? You have leaders requiring abstinence from foods and forbidding marriage. You have this problem going on in Ephesus, and it goes on in our world as well, where you have false teaching that disrupts and stagnates the, the momentum and morale of the church, and thereby the church is left with a, a messy witness to the world. And if the church can't get it right— then how does the church expect the world to get it right? 
this is the real challenge we have as Christians. So without going much further into that, you have this idea, again, your reputation within the family, reputation within the church, and reputation outside the church. And so those two things above reproach, the reputation and a one-woman man or the husband of one wife, right? That Those two things right there are huge things that need to be talked about. So let's go on into sober-minded. Sober-minded. What does that really mean to be sober-minded? Some of them, uh, some of the uh, Bibles refer to it as temperate. Temperate. Okay. Um, even in First Timothy chapter three verse eleven, the wives of deacons must be dignified, not slanderers but sober-minded or temperate. And the question is whether the term is to be taken as a literal reference to the virtue of moderation uh, in the use of wine, or rather as a figurative reference to balanced, sober thinking. And so the the idea of being sober-minded really has this idea, does does an overseer have command of his reason, especially in, uh, in, in, in the uh, moment of, of threat? Um, does the overseer have the ability to be watchful and observant of things that are going on around him, circumspect, as the King James would say it? Um, does he have a balanced understanding of things and does he process things soberly, seriously? Um, it doesn't mean that you're, you're on edge or you're hyped up or you're, it doesn't mean that kind of intensity. But you have this idea of sober-minded meaning. Do you have command of your, your, your faculties? In other words, are you letting, are you processing things um, through emotion, necessarily, or are you processing things only? Um, are, are are you taking many things into into uh, context and processing them that way? Emotional can be some of it. You have to be emotionally intelligent to understand what people are feeling um, in order not to. Uh, disturb otherwise content or fragile um, personalities at times. That's very difficult, very difficult. So the reason that Paul is talking about being temperate or um, sober-minded, which goes along with self-controlled, is this same kind of idea as... um, Paul is linking it to, was Jesus that way? Yes. Was Paul that way? Uh, not all his life, um, but, he, but he certainly was. But he's, he's not saying that he's the model. Obviously, Jesus is the model. Jesus is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, 1 Peter chapter 2. And then you have others that we refer to him as well. Peter will talk about in chapter 5, uh, watch yourselves. 
Uh, why? Because because you need to be um, you you're you're in a war. First uh, Timothy chapter. Uh, 18 and 19 again. Remember, verse 18 says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Uh, you've heard about the warfare in Ephesians chapter 6 because there are schemes from the devil that need to be defended. This is why we talked about able to teach so much. It doesn't mean that you are a, a, a classroom front man or that you are a uh, pulpit preacher, but it doesn't eliminate those uh, roles either. Uh, it encourages those roles, but especially encourages the idea of being able to handle these kinds of things uh, within a one-on-one -on -one context. Uh, within a small group context, um, that is more required, especially in our environment uh, in today's world, than just from a pulpit or from a classroom. Uh, many classroom teaching and pulpit, uh, you know, it just, it you're going to remember about 5% of that according to statistics. Surveys and statistics all say that you, people don't remember more than 5% of what was said in a 30-minute sermon or 30-minute class. Um, it's difficult. You have to repeat all of that stuff. So when you are in a relaxed environment that is non-threatening, maybe not um, as accelerated or um, dynamic as having so many people within that context, you definitely have an opportunity to teach and if you don't have your faculties, if you don't have your reason, um, you can be trapped very easily. And that's why he will talk about new converts. Uh, I don't know how many Bible studies that I have been in where people uh, were, they acted um, so thrilled that I would come over for Bible study and we'd have Bible studies and have been in them. And then you have them expecting you just to agree with what they believe and not take what you would believe the Bible to say, but to just basically agree with what maybe some author from another book said. How do you handle that? You have to be very gentle. <laughs> That's another one of the, the um, qualities here. Respectable, hospitable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over those for a second. Uh, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Uh, you, you, if you're quarrelsome as an, uh, an elder or an overseer, especially in a context where you're having opponents, it can become very, you can become very quickly, uh, your reputation is ruined. Remember reputation within family, reputation within the church, reputation with outsiders. Do you quarrel with people outside of the church, but not inside the church? That's not a good thing. Uh, that's a habit. Uh, you're forming a habit. That doesn't mean that you can't stand up for the truth, uh, but you can certainly do it in a, um, a, a salted way. <laughs> you speaking, you're the salt of the earth. You can, very, you can do it in a very deliberate um, and clear way to where you don't present yourself as an opponent. And if you're going to be in Bible studies discipling people, 
and leading people to be leaders in the future, you're going to be in situations where your your little protégés are going to disagree with you. Um, and they're going to be have strong opinions. Can you deal with that, Paul is saying. Because if you can't, um, if you're having trouble, then uh, the, you're going to fall into the, the, the temptation or the conde- condemnation of the devil. What does that mean? We'll get on into that later. I'll leave that hanging as a suspenseful idea. But you, you have this idea of what this entails as a an overseer, that role, one who aspires to the office of overseer, desires a good thing. Why? We need reputable Christians in the world. We need good Christians in the world, not to be better than others and to be self-righteous, but to be leaders so that other Christians can become mature, so that the church can become mature, so that the world can know Jesus and become believers. All of this has a context, and we are all ambassadors, chosen to be ambassadors to the world. Uh, but it, it, is, it isn't just something that we are given gifts, and then you just, you just wing it. Just go out into the world and wing it. Boy, wouldn't that be fun. Well, it isn't fun. I've, I've, I've done it, actually, um, in certain uh, younger, uh, I've had experience doing it. Let's put it that way. And it doesn't work. Uh, you just, you just, you just come out looking like a fool. So this idea of self-control is something that you have, uh, in, in Paul's understanding, I believe within uh, a Greek world. Um, many people who had uh, the ability to manage households, households. Um, they were. It's one of the cardinal virtues in um, Greco-Roman ethical thought. Um, and then uh, Paul appropriates it. It seems like uh, through Hellenistic Judaism, and it's it's got a theological basis in in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Uh, look at Titus one eight for that. So Paul deepened this idea by linking it to uh, Jesus' death on a cross, Titus chapter 2, verse 12. And that term, self-control, can cover a range of meaning, prudence, moderation, sobriety, but it really gives a general sense of control over the behavior and impulses of our emotions. And it appears here to be a requirement for leadership. And it's expected of all believers, even though it's just it's, even though it's a requirement for leadership, it's expected of all Christians, of course. So that fourth attribute, respectable, is predictable. I mean, it, it, it occurs just along self-control, alongside self-control, and the two together complete uh, a picture of honorable and dignified. Um, reputation. Uh, so Paul may not be listing a bunch of things. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but it may not have to have commas between every one, but you, you definitely don't have that in the Koine Greek, but you have this reinforcing of these ideas, reputation within family, reputation within the church, 
reputation with outsiders. And so with outsiders, you need to be hospitable. The leader must be hospitable. Hospitality, like uh, most of these qualities, was a practice required of all believers in general. But leaders were expected to uh, exemplify these this quality of hospitality, because within Greek culture, the hospitable householder was esteemed and honored, uh, and practiced hospitality. And practicing hospitality was uh, a matter of enhancing that honor. So, given the dangers of travel in uh, the Roman Empire and the um, certain economic uncertainties faced by many believers in the Roman Empire, the early Christian mission and churches depended upon those who would open their homes and share their stuff. So um, it seems like a, a common sense thing that a leader of the church would be hospitable. And I've certainly known men who were completely hospitable in that way because it invites people, especially outsiders and members of the church, it invites them to look, look at, look at the life that I have, look at the life that I'm leading, look at the life of faith that I actually have and imitate that. That's really important for a leader. That's really important for all of us, but it's really important for a leader to exemplify that. That's why we're so uh, critical of leaders. We expect so much from them. Some of it's fair, some of it's not fair. Um, uh, one thing I would like to add to that is the idea of elders are not Jesus. Elders are not everybody. They cannot fix everything. Uh, they're not. They're not even capable of fixing everything. And many times, the um, the air, the expectation of our era is that someone in leadership has the ability to to, to really fix our pain, uh, our trial, and that is just not the case. Um, uh, we can uh, recognize that as leaders. We can empathize as much as possible, sympathize, pray, uh, hold hands, work through it, but fix it. Um, can't do that. Um, Jesus didn't even fix hurt at times. Uh, he didn't fix anxiety and fear at times for people. Um we're called to something bigger than that, of course, but people were disappointed in Jesus. And so why would they not be disappointed in leaders within the church? Because they don't uh, do everything that uh, Christians expect them to do. Um, that is, that it's, it's, it's very difficult. And so can you as a leader, can you as a leader deal with that um, expectation. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard and you need to lean on other elders. You need to lean on other Christians. Uh, you need to lean on Jesus, obviously. And that is the hard part. So this brings us to the aspect of able to teach. And you can see already 
uh, just from our episodes in this elder series, why it is important to be able to teach not the uh, necessarily the the deepest truths, but you're going to have those who are very smart, and you're going to have those that are very unfamiliar and unacclimated, uh, almost scripturally illiterate. But you will have many that are very illiterate, and they have formed strong opinions about things within Scripture that you have to be able to deal with in, and um, you have to deal with bias. You have to deal with what your belief is, and you have to uh, go through that scrutiny. And that's going to require a lot of uh, time and patience. And so the, the, the ability to teach is not the idea of just being able to transmit an idea one to another. It's people. The skill in teaching is skill in teaching people, not skill in teaching ideas. Um, that's, that takes experience and maturity. And that is, that is the, one of the hardest things. Jesus was, he made it look easy uh, to teach people. But he loved them, and many of us are have difficulty with that. I had one instructor in Lubbock, Texas, when we talked about the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, he began his entire um, exhortation of the, the introduction in 1 Corinthians. He said something about the idea of uh, to live above, to live in heaven above with saints we love. Won't that be glory? To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So you have this idea within uh, Paul's mind through Timothy. Uh, you, you have this idea that your ability to teach is not just the idea of transmitting concepts um, and theological concepts especially, of just the the mind, it is the it is having the ability to have people um, trust you and uh, trust you to guide them in the right way at the right time, and that is a challenge for for leaders especially. So uh, those are just some of the uh, lists here. There's others like. Uh, not a drunkard. That would seem to be obvious. You, you, if your priority is to, uh, you know, in the ancient world, you don't have water's not the best thing to drink. You you have wine. If you get if you get if you rely on that, that's that's not a good habit. That can lead you out of your faculties, out of your command to reason, uh, command to uh, of keeping your emotions in check when you need to, uh, that can make you violent. Um, uh, having an addiction or a dependency on something that is, that's what we're talking about here. It is not that we're condemning a brother who may have a challenge with that. We're going to help him with that or her. But the problem is, is with an elder, you, you can't have a bull in a China closet. If something happens, uh, and they're, and they're they're dependent upon uh, drugs or alcohol. That's that's we that's that's going to lead to 
uh, collateral damage, and that's that's really challenging. So Paul understands this in the ancient world as he does, as we should understand it in our own time. Not quarrelsome. We talked about that a little bit. Not a lover of money. The idea of loving, being a lover of money back in the ancient world was you had, especially in Ephesus, a Greek culture with many who are able to speak very well. They were rhetoricians. They were lawyers. They knew how to craft arguments, and they knew how to be very compelling and very convincing. I've been over to Europe uh, enough to know that it, it doesn't even take um, someone who's trained to be very good at talking, slick talking. And in Ephesus, in, in our world, you have people who are very good at, at talking well. But is what they're saying um, solid ground to step forward on? That's the point. Um, so the other idea is managing his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. We'll get into that and some other things in the next episode. But here in this episode, you have heard repeatedly the idea. I began with this idea of having an ambassador like Timothy sent to Ephesus, kind of like Condoleezza Rice, who was reputable. And you have to be able to conduct yourself in a way, even as an ambassador, to help others who are leaders to... Uh, conduct themselves the way they should in the household, and which is the, the pillar and ground of truth, uh, the church. Uh, that's what the church is. They have to establish what the church really is and not what the false teachers claim it is. We have to see current uh, bias in our own world and confront that bias and overcome it with truth. Uh, we have to see those that are in leadership positions, that they are reputable within their families. Uh, within, We have to hold that standard uh, for them within their families, within the congregation, uh, and outside of the congregation is very important. It doesn't mean that someone has to be perfect, uh, but it does mean that someone has to have the right priorities is on the right track. And that uh, will take our scrutiny as well. So I want to leave you with those thoughts. There's others to be thought of in First Timothy three. Um, it is obvious what he says. If you know, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own house, his own family, then how is he going to take care of the, the the church of God? Um. It doesn't. It's not a con. It sounds bad to say that to somebody like you, you. You're so. No, it just means that if the priorities aren't straight, it can make a real mess of things. And then guess what happens? Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel, Jesus' great commission, is forgotten. Many of these teachers could care less if they would in Ephesus could care less if they help other churches spread the gospel. They have their own agendas. They have their own false teachings in mind, like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They have, they're blaspheming in, in a, a way that they're leading people away from Jesus. And they have their own uh, agenda, and it's not the Christ agenda, which is to tell the good news to the entire world, uh, not just transmit the idea, but model it and live it out 
And these, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are models of those that are not doing that and are actually malicious opponents. So I'm going to leave you with those ideas um, for this episode, and we're going to get on into more of the deacon, difference with the deacons uh, in the next episode. So I'm glad that you're able to uh, listen. And as always, if you have any questions, you know, we're going to talk about these things in class, and you're always welcome to uh, ask me. Uh, but there's Jeremy Camp again. When you speak, he's talking about Jesus, obviously. We want to listen. So let Paul speak because Paul is imitating Jesus here in First Timothy. I'll leave you with that. Have a great day. Have a great night. And we'll talk to you again soon. This is Lighthouse Podcast. It's a holy melody set in heaven's perfect key. Redemption's frequency healing me, healing me. It's the Father whispering mercy over every need. Breaking through and breaking free. Healing me, it's healing me when you speak. When you speak. Oh